We're going to be continuing uh, through the book of Ezekiel, and we're going to be in chapter 29 this morning. And uh, 29, 1 through 16, we won't do the whole chapter, and there's a logic behind that, which I won't, uh, again, get all into, but 29, 1 through 16, and that's on page 851 in your pew Bible. If you'd like to read in your paper copy of God's Word, you can do that. Uh, it'll be, I think it's in the bulletin, and it'll also be on the screen. I'm going to invite Charlie Stabilepsi forwards to read uh, 29, 1 through 16 for us. Thank you, Charlie. Good morning. In the 10th year, in the 10th month, on the 12th day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I'm against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams, that says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your streams stick to your scales. And I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams with all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales. And I will cast you out into the wilderness, you and all the fish of your streams. You shall fall on the open field and not be brought together or gathered. To the beasts of the earth and to the birds of the heavens, I give you as food. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord. Because you have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel, when they grasped you with the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders. And when they leaned on you, you broke and made all their loins to shake. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring a sword upon you, and will cut off from you man and beast, and the land of Egypt shall be a desolation and a waste. They will know that I am the Lord. Because you said, the Nile is mine, and I made it, therefore behold, I am against you and against your streams, and I will make the land of Egypt an utter waste and desolation, from Migdal to Syene, as far as the border of Cush. No foot of man shall pass through it, and no foot of beast shall pass through it. It shall be an uninhabited forty years. And I will make the land of Egypt a desolation in the midst of desolated countries, and her city shall be a desolation forty years among cities that are laid waste. I will scatter the Egyptian among the nations and disperse them through the countries. For thus says the Lord God, At the end of forty years I will gather the Egyptians from the peoples among whom they were scattered, and I will restore the fortunes of Egypt and bring them back to the land of Pathros, the land of their origin. And there they shall be a lowly kingdom. It shall be the most lowly of the kingdoms and never again exalt itself above the nations. And I will make them so small that they will never again rule over the nations. And it shall never again be the reliance of the house of Israel, recalling their iniquity when they turned them for aid. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. And the grass withers and the flower fades. <clears throat> amen. And amen it does. 
Let's pray one more time as we come to the word of the Lord. God, keep a watch over my lips that only your truth would come forth, God. I, like everyone here and everyone listening, am a a broken, fallen, imperfect, flawed person. I don't see everything. But help me to be faithful to what you have declared to be right and true. And I pray your word would go forth with power and that your people would be able to receive it with power. Holy Spirit, come. Take these words and apply them to the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you or any of you ever heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world? Has anybody heard of that phrase maybe at some point? The seven wonders of the ancient world. There's seven wonders of the modern world as well. Not to... Shouldn't be confused, they are different things. But only one of the seven wonders of the ancient world remains intact. The great pyramid of Cheops at Giza in Egypt. And Scott, you can cue up the image. There it is. The great pyramid of Giza is the biggest Egyptian pyramid and the tomb of the fourth dynasty pharaoh Khufu initially standing at almost 500 feet. It was 480-something feet. The Great Pyramid was the tallest man-made structure in the world for almost 4,000 years. One scholar writes these words, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses, and the children of Israel would have gazed upon this pyramid, no doubt in awe. Its base area covering some 13 acres is so great that it could accommodate the cathedrals of Florence, Milan, St. Paul's and Westminster Abbey in London and St. Paul's in Rome and still have some space left over. End quote. The Egyptian civilization was one of the greatest and most powerful civilizations in the ancient world. The Great Pyramid of Cheops, along with the others, was intended to be a glimpse of Egyptian greatness. It's no surprise, then, that the Jewish king Zedekiah, whom we looked at a couple of weeks ago, would reach out to Egypt in a time of distress. Babylon was on the rise and encroaching, and Zedekiah grew fearful, concerned, reaches out to Egypt, this powerful, great nation, hoping that the words of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, which we've been looking at for some time together now, would prove wrong. Jeremiah and Ezekiel both saying, Jerusalem's going to fall, Judah's going to fall. Zedekiah reaches out to Egypt, and no doubt many of the others in that land, hoping that the words of Jeremiah and Ezekiel would prove wrong. That somehow, Egypt maybe would rise up and help preserve the Jewish heritage, their nation, their temple, and Babylon would not be able to overtake Jerusalem. Yet this was a false hope, was it night? We've talked about this for some weeks now. This was a false hope. Not because Egypt was too weak 
or too inadequate, but because this was not the purpose of God. Remember last week, God raises up nations. He is moving the pawns of the earth around. He has a plan and purpose. It was not in God's plan for Egypt to deliver Judah. God was moving in a different direction in Egypt and Pharaoh or than Egypt and Pharaoh, no matter how powerful or great, they were not going to change that. It's here at this point in our story where we begin to see that God's purpose in history is often not what ours is. His agenda is not what our agenda is. God's priorities are not what our priorities are. His ways are not our ways. So here's the big idea I want to try and get across today in a very simple thought. Because God's priorities are always perfect and right. Those of you who are believers, I hope you know that. I hope you believe that, that God's purpose, his plan, what he's doing is always right and always perfect and always good, even if it doesn't look that way. Because of that, we must orient our lives around his priorities. In other words, we must build our lives, live our lives, knowing, acknowledging, recognizing what God is doing. His priorities, not our own, right? In other words, as we live out our lives, one of the questions we must always be asking ourselves is what is God doing in this situation? What is his purpose and his plan? So many of us, I think, again, speaking for myself as I put this word together, speaking for myself here, many of us, I think, merely evaluate things that are happening to us or around us on the level of what we want or what we think. How often we do this? And quite frankly, as King Zedekiah found out, it doesn't matter what we think. It only matters what God is doing. The great question of Ezekiel's day and of our day is, what is God doing? What is God's purpose? What is the Lord up to? There are some things we can say about God's purpose, no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter where we are, what we're facing. We can say some things confidently, no matter what day or age or epoch we live in. Whether in Ezekiel's time or Abraham's time or our own time, we can say some things about what God is doing and about God's priorities. They are unflinching and steadfast. So today, I want to look at three of God's primary priorities, and then I want us to think about what that means for our lives. How can we build our lives, orient our lives around his purpose and what he is doing? I think this passage is going to give us a glimpse of these things in a really remarkable way. So the first priority is this. And again, this applies across the ages and times. Okay, so this is this will be true, you know, back in Ezekiel's day before that be true today, true tomorrow. Priority number one, God is always working to humble the proud. Humble the proud. God is always working to humble the proud. And um, a corollary to that, to exalt the humble. To exalt the humble. Well, today, as many of you no doubt know, maybe why some aren't here, I'm supposing, 
Today is Super Bowl Sunday, okay? Chiefs and the Eagles. Show of hands, who wants the Eagles to win? Okay, about half. Who wants the Chiefs to win? Yeah, less than half, <laughs> just a handful. Who doesn't care? Yeah, <laughs> quite a number. A lot of hands that time. <laughs> Most of us probably don't care. Our team isn't in the game. Maybe some of you aren't sports people. You know, Patriots aren't in the in the fight. Well, that's certainly true of me. My team isn't in the big game and probably never will be. It doesn't seem. It's talking about the priorities and purpose of God. The Carolina Panthers are not one of them. Um, but I almost always, when I... I'm watching a game between two teams. I really don't care about the outcome. I'm almost always pulling for the underdog, right? You know what that means? You're pulling for the team that's less likely to win, the maybe the weaker team. Um, interestingly, in this matchup, they're almost perfectly aligned. They're almost identical statistically. Their win-loss record, all of it. It's going to be a really, really interesting matchup, though. I'm not even sure I'll watch it, but... But I'm always pulling for the underdog, right, when it comes to these things. Think of David and Goliath. In that matchup, most of us are probably inclined to pull for little David, right? Maybe some of you feel that. Maybe some of you are, are like uh, passionate pullers for the underdogs, whatever we would call that. You like to see the weaker team or the lesser team win. Well, in a way, you might say that that principle is a godly principle. It's something we see... God often say about himself that God opposes those who are proud and strong and lift themselves up. And he gives grace to those who are weak and humble. Jesus said that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Those are the words of Christ himself. We see this principle at work here in our passage today. And we see it in two ways, actually. We see it at work on the side of the helper, Egypt, And we also see it at work on the side of the one who is wanting help from Egypt, Israel. And there are lessons in both of these for us. But as we get to those lessons, let's quickly look at verses 1 through 5. What we have in this section in verses 1 through 5 is a kind of diatribe against proud Pharaoh in Egypt. Starts off right there in the 10th year, in the 10th month, on the 12th day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. And at this point, Jerusalem has been under siege for a little over a year. Okay, so all this is going on in the backdrop. And uh, God speaks to Ezekiel and tells him a bit about what he's doing. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all of Egypt. That expression, set your face against, means to be opposed to. God is saying, I'm opposed to uh, these people. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams. Now, that dragon is in other translations called a monster. If you look at it, maybe in the, I think maybe the NIV and a number of other translations has monster there. Some believe this reference to be to that of a great crocodile, since uh, later on in this section it mentions scales and uh, being in the Nile, there are very, very many large crocodiles. So many think that this is in Egypt, in that context, this is speaking of a large uh, crocodile. Pharaoh and Egypt are likened 
to that of a large croc that has claimed the Nile as its own. So continue on in verse 3 there. It says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. This is Pharaoh in Egypt uh, speaking. What an image. You think of a crocodile prancing around like like he owns the place. You ever seen a crocodile walking? They kind of got their you know their head up and they just like they own the place. These massive, mighty, intimidating creatures. They could the Nile crocs can be uh, up to twenty feet long, sixteen hundred pounds. These are incredibly large, uh, intimidating creatures. One scholar says that back in those times, crocs would have been caught with large hooks. So now in verse 4, again, another reason why uh, perhaps this is speaking of of a crock. I will put hooks in your jaws, it says in verse 4, and make the fish of your streams stick to your scales. And I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams with all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales. The image here is that the large crock has been hooked and pulled up out of the water and out into the wilderness on the land. And some suggest that the fish sticking to the scales are all the numerous peoples of Egypt. They too will be scattered in the wilderness with Pharaoh and all of Egypt. And that's again what we see here in the next verse. Verse 5. I will cast you out into the wilderness. You and all the fish of your streams, all your peoples shall fall on the open field and not be brought together or gathered. To the beasts of the earth and the birds of the heavens, I give you as food. So just as God destroyed uh, Egypt centuries prior in the days of Moses with the plagues, God is going to humble Egypt again. In Ezekiel, four whole chapters are dedicated to the humiliation of Egypt. It's like one twelfth of the book or something is dedicated to God's judgment on Egypt. Why? Why so much attention to Egypt? Let me ponder this for a moment. Why so much attention? There's other nations mentioned in this section where God is casting judgment on the nations. Why so much focus on Egypt? Well, there's two ways, I think, to look at what is going on here. And each of them is going to give us a lesson and a glimpse, maybe, perhaps, about uh, why the focus on Egypt. The first way to look at this is from the perspective of Egypt, the one offering help, potentially, right? Zedekiah reaches out, um, and Egypt says, okay, sure, we'll see what we can do against Babylon. We might at first brush think that Egypt is doing what's right here, right? Maybe. Zedekiah, king of Judah, the leader of the Jewish people, reaches out and asks for help. When he gets insecure about Babylon, maybe we think he's helping the underdog, right? Remember we talked about the underdogs. Maybe we think he's out to help the little guy. Big bad Babylon is coming in to stomp on little old Judah. and They're stepping in to intervene. We should be pulling for Egypt, rooting for them to help the little guy here. But remember what the text says. Egypt is haughty arrogant the pharaohs viewed themselves as gods on earth the nile obeyed their command their heart to step into this conflict was not pure they were not looking to god for help and strength they didn't care that that the jewish people were god's chosen people and that was their heart to help they were not seeking to bring praise to him 
to God. They were after the praise of Egypt and the power of Egypt. In fact, because it was God who had commanded Babylon to come in and destroy Jerusalem. Egypt was actually making themselves enemies of God in this move here. Quickly look at verses 15 and 16 with me. Kind of jump to the end of our passage. Speaking of Egypt, it shall be the most lowly of the kingdoms and never again exalt itself above the nation. See that? Exalting itself. It's wanting power and glory. This is what Egypt is. This is not about God. And I will make them so small that they will never again rule over the nations. And it shall never again be the reliance of the house of Israel. Recalling their iniquity when they turn to them for aid. They will know that I am the Lord. So thinking about what it means. Okay, as we look at Egypt and what they're doing as they reach out to help an underdog, right? To, to assist someone in need. What does it mean? What, when we hear God's response to that, what can we learn? What does it mean to orient ourselves around what God is doing about his purpose? What can we learn from this? One thing I think we can learn from this little account here of Egypt is that our goal in helping others should not be to feel good about ourselves or to bring praise to ourselves, right? This is a simple point here that rolls right out of this. If we're helping folks to exalt ourselves or make a name for ourselves to you know, better our reputation or whatever, that's what Egypt was doing. Perhaps that's a wrong motive. I would suggest it is. When we play a part in the rescue mission of God, many of you are very active in the community, and I praise God for that. But we need to take a moment and look inside, right? When we're playing a part in the rescue mission of God, maybe sharing our faith, maybe shoveling out our neighbor's driveway, picking up groceries for someone, whatever it is, let's be sure we're working for God and not some other agenda, right? Like Egypt was. Egypt had their own agenda. This was not about God. And that's perhaps the first lesson. When we think and put ourselves in the shoes of Egypt. Let's check our motives and be sure that we're doing the things we do for Jesus and not for self-glory. So that's one way we can make God's priorities our priorities. Now let's look at a second lesson that comes right out of this for us. And I have this kind of outline in your in your bulletin there if you're interested in kind of following along. I've got some little uh, notes there to kind of help guide us through the word today. But let's look at the second lesson that comes out of this uh, for us. This time from the perspective of the Jewish people. So we've looked at it kind of from the perspective of Egypt coming in to exalt themselves and to make a name for themselves and to, you know, exert their power and influence. Now, what about from the perspective of the Jewish people, the ones receiving the help? Remember that roughly a thousand years prior to Ezekiel's time, the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. Remember that. Many of you know those stories, right? We talk about them when we're here together a lot. God brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and now they look back to their former slave masters for help instead of looking to God. God is always working to humble the proud, isn't he? Egypt will not be their rescuer. God says, no, you will not rescue my people. God and God alone will be. God does not need Egypt. In fact, God is going to destroy Egypt in order to show them and Israel, Israel they are not needed. 
So the lesson here for us is this. The first place we should go when we hit a problem or a snag or a trouble in our life is not to get on the phone and call Uncle Bob, who's rich, okay? Or mom or dad or anyone, even though those people may care deeply about you. The first place we go when we're in a pickle is to God. And that might be as simple as offering a prayer. It might be as simple as taking a moment to sit in your recliner at home and think about the situation and reach out to God for advice. It might be to open your Bible and seek wisdom. It might be to, maybe it would be to phone a friend who knows the Lord and walks with the Lord to help you walk through from God's perspective the situation. But let God be your counselor, right? Reach out to God. And I think that's the second lesson here for us that rolls right out of this. When we come up against the trouble, let's not turn to Egypt. Let's not turn to the world, but to God. Let's be quick to run to him. And sometimes what we'll find in that situation, whatever it is, is that God has a bigger purpose in it, right? We may not understand it, but the difficulty, the problem, whatever it is, is part of something bigger and greater than we can imagine. And that's certainly what was happening here. Egypt thought they were going to intervene as God sent in Babylon to do something. Nope, 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 God says. You're you're not going to get in the middle of this. Something bigger was going on. And I think that's what Israel missed. And that leads us to our second priority. So our first priority is God's always working, right, to humble the proud. And we see that from both angles, right, from Egypt and from the Jewish perspective. So remember the big idea for this morning. Because God's priorities are always right and perfect, we must orient our lives around His priorities. And that second priority that we see in our passage today is that God is always working for the good of His people. So the first one, He's working to humble the proud. This is true across times and ages. It's also true across times and ages that God is always working for the good of His people. Okay? For the good of his people. I've told this story here at Red Door um, before, but it's just so fitting for this morning's message. I thought I would uh, share it again. Maybe some of you remember the story of little Jessica McClure. On a beautiful day in October in Midland, Texas, this has probably been 25 years now or more, uh, 18-month-old Jessica was left alone for a few minutes in her aunt's backyard to play. One writer writes these words, the little girl had playfully dangled her feet over an innocent appearing eight-inch opening in the ground, and when she tried to stand up, she fell into the darkness, fell down into this hole. She fell 22 feet down into the shaft just above the well's water. One leg was up, one leg was down. Eventually, a plan was hatched to dig a vertical shaft next to the well where Jessica was lodged. They thought, you know, if we can get next to her and then drill over, maybe we can rescue her. So they brought in some emergency responders that were really good with drilling. And they would drill down and then bore a hole over to where she was. But the effort took much longer than anticipated, 58 hours. This poor, small child had been in that hole for two and a half days. Medical 
personnel obviously uh, were alarmed and grew increasingly alarmed and began to warn that dehydration and shock were becoming big concerns. Her body was positioned in such a way that all of their efforts to free her up to this point had failed. So they got over to her, but they couldn't break her free because of the way she was positioned. A measure of panic began to sink in. And they checked her vital signs one more time. And then they gave this dreadful instruction. And this is the line that just kills me every time I hear it. Pull hard. She doesn't have more time. You may have to break her to save her. You may have to break her to save her. Under other circumstances, such a statement would sound harsh, wouldn't it? Breaking someone whose life is not in danger would be considered assault. But in this case, it was love. It was the right and loving thing to do. Of course, those of you who've heard the story before, she was freed, lived to tell the story. She's still alive today. Happy ending, right? But that statement, you may have to break her to save her. In Ezekiel's day, God was working to save his people. But in order to save them, he would have to break them. And as we've seen, God had raised up Babylon to be that rod, to be that thing that was going to break his people. Instead of turning to God in repentance and accepting God's righteous judgment, his people looked to Egypt. Now look with me now at verses 6 and 7 in our passage, if you've got it there. Because you have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. Again, this is still speaking to Egypt. In other words, they've been a crutch, right? When they grasped you with the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders. And when they leaned on you, you broke and made all their loins to shake. The image here is that Israel leaned upon Egypt like a crutch. Imagine Someone who's frail, someone who's weak, grasping for their crutch, and they lean on it, and instead of it helping them, it actually makes it worse, and it breaks, and they injure themselves further. That's the, the image here that is being painted for us. And this is not because Egypt was insufficient and inadequate. That's not the point of what God is saying here, that you weren't able to help my people because you're, you're insignificant. No. The point is that you're interfering with my agenda, with my plan. You're getting in the middle of something that is so much bigger than you. And therefore, I'm going to remove you and discipline you for that. What we're seeing here is that God is absolutely determined to have the heart of his people. Egypt will not rescue his people. God will be the rescuer. They are his people, not Egypt's people. They are his But in order to truly have them, to truly save them, to rescue them, they must first be broken. They must see that their greatest enemy, as we said last week, we talked about this last week, their greatest enemy is not Babylon, but themselves, their own sin. And they must see that the only way out of their sin and their mess is for God himself to act, not Egypt. Egypt was a false hope for Israel, not because they lacked power or money or strategy, but because they could not deliver Israel truly from their deepest problems. 
their sins. Only God could do that. But not only that, Egypt's goals, as I said a moment ago, were not God's goals. They were trying to do something that was not in line with God's vision, plan, and purpose. Now, do any of y'all remember what Peter said to Jesus when Jesus told him he was going to be betrayed and crucified? Do some of y'all remember that encounter where they had this direct encounter? Perhaps you do. Peter said, may it never be. May it never be. That will never happen to you, Lord, is what Peter said to Jesus when Jesus said, I'm going to die, Peter. And Jesus' reply to Peter's words, this is the famous part, get behind me, Satan, he said. Get behind me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus was going to go to the cross and die for sin so that you and me and Peter and all the rest could be saved. Everyone who would trust in him could be saved. That's a hard way. That's difficult to go to a cross. We don't understand that here. We don't see people crucified here. But they did. So it's horrific and terrible. That's a hard way to save people. But it was God's way. And Peter meant well. Maybe like Egypt, perhaps in some way. There was maybe somewhere in there. There was some good intention. Maybe Peter meant well, but he was tempting the Lord to choose an easier way. There was no easier way. And so it is, so it was here for Judah in Ezekiel's day. Zedekiah was looking for an easier way by reaching out to Egypt. But God says, there is no other way. This is the way. To truly save my people. They must be broken. God's way is often a very hard way. But it's the good way. It's the good way. God is always working. For the good of his people. And as we go along in this book. I hope anyway. A little further to go. We're going to see that more and more clearly. That God has a very good purpose and plan. For his people. God is moving his people towards a promise of revival and new life, but they have to be broken first. Now, often, just like Israel, our goals are different, right? Our goals are not God's goals. We want comfort, don't we? If we're all honest, we want things to be easy. Our desires are for what is straightforward and easy. Our hopes are for what is best for ourselves but just like little jessica playing over that hole in midland texas we don't know what's best for us right we think that this is this is what i should do but it's actually a a deep hole we don't true we don't truly know what we most need god does and he's always working for the good of his people so whatever you're facing right now whatever that is maybe you've got bills you can't pay Maybe you're in a broken relationship. Maybe your kids or your grandkids keep you up at night with worry. Maybe you're sick. Maybe you've got a diagnosis. We're all, we all have, we could have, we've got our list, right? All of us do. But whatever you're facing, if you are a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the promise that God is always working all things together for your good. All things. 
you can build your life around that. This is what motivates people to go to the ends of the earth for Jesus. To make bold steps of faith for Jesus. This confidence that God is going to be working for their good, no matter what. Should give you confidence. To do something great for God. You don't need to have a lot of talent or skills. Right? You don't have to be the best this or the best that to be used by God. But what you do need is this confidence. You need to know that God is for you in everything. He's always working in everything for your good. If you don't have that confidence, it's going to be hard to do great and bold things for God. Not because, again, God will, God will use us and, and God will, will bless us when we step out in faith. Not because we're such great people, but because God is faithful, right? Because he is the special one. We don't have to be super dynamic, charismatic, skilled, talented people. He's all of that, right? We point to him. We live for him. He is what is most remarkable, about us. And God is faithful to his promises. And this leads us right to our final point. God is always working for the glory of his name. Right? He's working for our good. But he's working for his glory in his name. Now when you look at this relatively short section before us today. What phrase is repeated over and over again in those few verses? If you just look at it, you'll see. Verse 6, verse 9, verse 16. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 9. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Verse 16. Then they will know that I am the Lord. We've heard this repeatedly throughout this book. God's stating that. That they might know that I am the Lord. God is obviously concerned that all the world knows he is God. This is God's greatest priority in everything. Whatever is happening around us and in us. The greatest priority is the glory of his name. Not only is this right and good. Because God is great. God is glorious. And he is most great and most glorious. Out of all the beings in the universe, there is none greater than he. And it is right that he be worshipped. He is most beautiful. He is most worthy. It is right that he call others to worship him. God himself would be a sinner, an idol worshiper, if he honored anyone or anything over himself. There is no one greater. So he calls us to worship him. And he himself honors himself above all others. And that is right and good. But what this means for us is that there is no greater joy, no greater privilege than to worship and honor this being, this God, this creator. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. In his house is joy and gladness. And unlike us, God is always faithful to his promises. Right? Oh, how we struggle with that. So God's passion for his own glory and the fame of his name is actually really good news for us. Because what it means is that God never forgets the promises that he makes. God never forgets his people. He's promised. His name depends on him being faithful 
to what he said. And he is faithful. God never forgets. If he forgot us, he would not only be a liar and not be trustworthy or good, but he would not be glorious. So God's glory is tied inextricably to our good. His pursuit of our good and our blessing is also his pursuit of his own glory. And God gets his glory different from us, doesn't he? Not like Egypt, right? You know, violence, doing all these. God gets his glory, we'll see, ultimately by laying himself down, right? God pursues his glory in a different way than the kind of glory seeking we find here on earth. You know the type. We've seen these types of leaders and nations in world history where unspeakable, horrific evils are done in the name of earthly glory and earthly power. As we go through the story of Ezekiel and as we come into the New Testament, we're going to see that our God is one who is willing to go as far as to come down and dwell amongst the people he wants to save. And this is where all this is leading, ultimately. Right? The whole story of the Old Testament is coming into the New. He will come down and dwell with us and suffer with us and suffer for us. He's the one who's willing to give and sacrifice and serve, even to the point of death, death on a cross. That's different. When was the last president or czar or king or ruler or prime minister you saw give their life away for their people this is different in the cross we see all of these priorities of god coming together we see the proud humbled we see the humbled exalted we see god working for our good and we see god glorified these priorities should also characterize our lives Our lives should be oriented around all of these things as well. The world tells you to be like Egypt. To display your greatness and to strive for your own glory. Which is not right of us, the creatures, right? Right for the creator, not right for the creature. Those pyramids may have been great, but let's remember they were also tombs. There is no life to be found in earthly greatness. All those pharaohs died. And their remains are still there. God tells us that true life is to be found only in seeking his glory. Only in putting our confidence in his purpose and his plan. As we live our lives, let's keep God's priorities in mind. Amen. It was what the Lord laid on my heart this morning. And let's pray as we now turn to the Lord in song. God, we, we've heard a word. It's not easy to live this way. In fact, for us as fallen, broken people, it's impossible for us to truly live this way. We are by nature selfish. We are by nature about our own glory, our own reputation. We we live by the pride of life and the, the attention of the world. These are the things that so many of us seek after. Lord, help us. Holy Spirit, come. Show us the better way. Show us how to live this way to realize that it's the humble that get grace. 
the humble that are exalted, to realize that no matter what's happening in our lives, you are working for our good. And that what is best for us is your glory, your honor, your praise. We were made to that end. God, help us live this way. Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.